I thought you were leaving me some money, Karen. (laughs) So good to see you all. So glad to get to be a part of this special day. And I want to praise God. Is that the sun we're looking at out there? Yay! (laughs) Very excited about that. We're going to have some great uh, wildflowers this spring. That is for sure. We've been shouting to the Lord for a few weeks now. Today we're going to be shouting in our moments of deepest need. Psalm 27 are the honest words of a man who finds himself facing great trials and great dangers. David was anointed by Samuel to be the future king of Israel when he was 16 years old. And he was 30 years old when he finally took that position. So in between, we find him running from King Saul, who wants him to be killed, running from armies, running from hostile nations, hiding, hanging around caves, not to mention slander, the lies, the hatred that surrounded him. He's isolated. He's uncomfortable. He's in unfamiliar situations. He's away from the country and the people that he loves. And this is his life. He'd been given a promise, but it took 14 years for that promise to happen. And so he had to learn how to trust God. He had to learn to wait on God. And you and I don't have these exact situations. We can be grateful for that. But we still live in a world where there's wars. Rumors of wars. Some of you have family or children that are in wars right now, helping, serving our country. We still have violent people. We still have, in our lifetime, that potential to face slander and lies and injustice. And we will encounter times of loneliness and rejection and isolation and being in unfamiliar Settings, we will have death confront us or those that we love, sickness. All of those things will be in our lifetime. We have to learn to trust God. We have to learn to wait on God. And it's God's desire that we don't face those huge things in our life apart from Him. God helps those who help themselves is a religious life. We've been talking about religious lies at church. When Abraham had this daunting task of being the father of this new nation that would serve God, and he faced lots of dangers, lots of frightening times, these were God's words. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. When Moses was given the task of getting those people of Uh, Israel, who are now enslaved in Egypt, getting them out to go to the promised land, and he feels terrified, God says to him, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. I will be with you. And when Joshua takes that nation and stands on the shores about to go into this land, and he's looking at these pagan nations that would like to kill them, And God looks at Joshua and says, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
And when the disciples were in a boat with Jesus and he falls asleep and a giant storm comes and they're just freaking out and their fears are rising and rising and they finally wake Jesus up and say, hey, we're going to die out here. And he merely speaks a word to the wind and the waves and the storm and it all dies down and he looks at his disciples and says, why would you be so afraid? Hello, I'm in the boat with you. (laughs) All of these people had to wait on God's timing for deliverance. But they didn't have to do it alone. This great storm that terrified the disciples, God was in control all along. In fact, he was in the storm with them. And that's what we have to remember when we face these things. And really, it's just called living life. It's just going to be living life in a lost, fallen world. So on your outline, waiting on God is to confidently expect that he will act in the best time, in the best way, for my best. Look on your verse sheet, Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I've been reading, um, starting in the summer, a couple books from a woman named Helen Hoover. She and her husband moved to this cabin in Minnesota. And I think she wrote the books in like the 50s or the 60s. So, so they're old now. And they were living this life out away from civilization and away from comfort. And so she got real into animals. When there's no people around, she got into animals. So it's basically lots of animal stories. But um, she tells this neat story about when the black-capped chickadees come into her area in Minnesota. And you guys, in Texas, there's a lot of black-capped chickadees. They're one of my favorite birds. Look like a sparrow, have a little black cap on. Okay. Here they are in Minnesota, and she notices right off one of them has a bad leg. And so it's kind of limping around and in the midst of this flock of chickadees. And then she notices that there's another one whose wing is extended. So it just flies with one wing, doesn't do very well. And to her amazement, the two maimed chickadees get together. And so she thought it was the neatest thing. And they build a nest. And they have babies. And she watches these two chickadees and their little family in this nest. But then the weather changes. And it's time for the chickadees to move on into warmer areas. And she watches the one with the bad leg fly off and leave the one with the broken wing. And she has to stay through the winter alone because she is not strong enough to take that flight. And so they think, okay, we'll just watch her. She goes back to that nest and they think maybe she can survive there through the winter. And one day they start realizing, you know, how branches get heavy with snow. The snow had fallen down in a big lump right over her nest. And so they run out. I told you they don't have much to do. So they run out. (laughs) They move the snow. Sure enough, there's that chickadee just about dead in that nest because it's been covered in snow for I don't know how long. They bring it in the house. They think it's still breathing, so they get some water in it. And while it's unconscious, they think, let's check this wing out 
maybe she won't die and we can help her. So they look in the wing and right here where, you're, where it would bend, a little twig had got embedded there and then grown into her wing. So they get a clippers and pull it out and it bleeds a little bit and they fix it and they take care of this little chickadee and she comes back to life and now she's got a movable wing. And so they nurse her and they're thinking the minute they fix it, she's just going to start flying around that room. Well, she would only still fly with the one wing and just left that other wing hanging there. And it drove them crazy because they knew she could use that wing. But she became this pet chickadee, sat on their shoulders while she cooked, (laughs) hung out with her. One day they actually had a visitor, a human being, and (laughs) he brought his dog. And it so scared the chickadee that she flew to a beam up high in the house, realizing for the first time, I have two wings. And she's so excited. And so she starts going in the window for them to let her out. And long story short, every day she flies a little more learning how to use that wing until she's as healthy as she could ever be. And here's the, it almost doesn't sound true. Anyway, Helen Hoover says (laughs) that the chickadees came back through and there's the one with the bad leg. And he finds the exact same chickadee. And they get back together, but then when it's time to migrate, she flies off with him. So I thought, that is the coolest story. And it fit because we were looking at Isaiah about us mounting with wings like eagles. And I thought, sometimes though, in our trials, we are like the bird with the broken wing that has been healed. We have the potential to fly But we're handicapped because of our lack of faith and trust in God. We want to rely on our own strength. And that just doesn't work. Isaiah tells us, if we wait on the Lord and his strength, we will mount up with wings like eagles. Look at verse 40. Why do you complain, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired. and his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. David knows this. Look at Psalm 27, verse 14. David says, Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. And I read in a lot of things, here's the best translation of that. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And so on your outline, the result of waiting on the Lord is we find our hearts becoming strong. And then I think David also gives us the foundation for waiting on the Lord, how we can do that. Look at verse 13 in Psalm 27. David says, I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the land of the living just means while David is still alive. David is saying, 
because God is good, he will see me through this trial. On your outline, the foundation for waiting on the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord rely on the goodness of God. I realize in my life when I'm flying haphazardly, when I'm flying and I look like I'm wounded, when my soul is wounded, I have probably lost sight of the goodness of God. And I have to say this, without having a grasp of that, it will be impossible to wait on God. We have to rely on the goodness of God. In fact, look again at Isaiah 40. I think this is so like us. This is what Israel is saying. God doesn't even notice my ways. My cause is disregarded by God. They had lost sight and the goodness of God. And so God, in the rest of this verse, is reminding them, have you forgotten who I am? My ways are too hard for you to understand. You just need to understand, I am good and wait on me. So what does that look like? Uh, Before we look at it, I did want to say this. This isn't a formula that if we do these things that David did, then um, we are never going to be afraid again the rest of our life. We are never going to uh, have fears. We will trust God perfectly the rest of our life. I believe waiting on the Lord is a discipline, just like a lot of the other spiritual disciplines we have. And so we have to be committed to learning how to wait on him. We have to uh, rise to the occasion to practice these things. But I do believe if we take on the task of finding our confidence in God instead of other things, if we take on the task of communing in fellowship with God, if we take on the task of communicating by praying to God, we will find that we're flying with two wings. Life will seem less frightening, and we will walk in the strength of the Lord. So first we wait in confidence, and when we do that, we will affirm the realities of God in our life. So look at verse 1 of 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I can almost picture David sitting on some cliff here. I think he probably did that a lot. He's in some strange country. Maybe he just finished a battle. Maybe he's looking down on some enemies. Maybe he's escaped some enemies. Maybe he's dreaming about the promise that he would be king one day. And he's realizing, I think I have a lot of things to do before I get to that place. And so he pens these very personal words. He says, the Lord, he doesn't say the Lord is a light. He doesn't say the Lord is the light. He says the Lord is my light. He doesn't say the Lord is a salvation or the Lord is the salvation. David said he's my salvation. He's not a stronghold. He's not the stronghold. He is my stronghold. This is the realities in David's life with his God. And his soul is so assured of it that he pens these words very boldly. Spurgeon says this about those things. Into the soul at the new birth, divine light is poured as the precursor of salvation. Salvation finds us in the dark, but it doesn't leave us there. After conversion, 
Our God is our joy, our comfort, our guide. So in every sense, he's our light. He is light within. He is light around. His light is reflected from us and light to be revealed to us. And it reminded me of the time Jesus stood in front of a group of people and spoke some words that they had probably never heard anybody say in their whole life. Look on your verse sheet at John 8. Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will follow the light of life. Even before Jesus was physically born, I believe David understood that light. So if light and salvation signify joy and guidance and life, then the stronghold signifies strength and protection and uh, defense. Light and salvation would be the inner protections of God. The stronghold would be the outer protections of God in our life. And so David has to ask the question, if these things are true, if I'm surrounded by God inside and out, who who should I fear? Nobody. I don't have to fear anyone. Look at Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justified. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And when we hold these realities, when we affirm these realities about God in our life, on your outline, we find that fear is diminished. And maybe you've had those moments in your life, I definitely have, where fear begins to rise in your heart. A lot of times that happens to me after I go to bed. And I don't know if that happens to you. You're lying there, Ted's asleep in about four seconds. And then I start thinking usually about my kids or something in the future in your heart, just your adrenaline starts pumping. And if I don't go to God in those moments, I slowly find myself doing really desperate And stupid things, thinking stupid things, behaving in irrational ways. But if I stop and affirm the reality of God in my life, you can actually feel that fear subsiding in your life because you're thinking about who God is. You're not just thinking about your circumstance. It reminded me a few years ago, I got to go with some women here on a mission trip to the island of Trinidad. And these wonderful women all got to teach during the day to the women in their church. But then at night, they invited the whole island to come, and I got to teach in the book of Ruth. And so that was exciting. It turned out to be a huge blessing in my life. But when I was going there, I was having one of those moments where I was allowing fears to come up because it was very unknown. And I also was getting the sense some other countries kind of... um, 
think about speakers, et cetera, in a different way maybe than we do here in America. They kind of put them on a pedestal. I'm not comfortable with that. And so when I first got there, they were saying things like that. So I was feeling my fears beginning to rise and rise. And then one day, the first full day we were there, one of the elder um, women in the church that was a leader there came walking boldly into the kitchen and said, Where is the woman of God? And I thought, where is she? (laughs) I'm looking around, and then to my dismay, I realize she's talking about me, and she comes across the kitchen and kisses me, and so then I'm feeling my adrenaline (laughs) pumping and my fears pumping. And then I walk past a window, and a car goes by, and there's a big foghorn speaker on top of the car saying, everyone come to hear the American woman talking tonight at the church and I almost start hyperventilating so (laughs) it was one of those moments that I thought I gotta affirm the reality of God and I just ran into a room God alone and in within five minutes of being in the presence of God and me talking to him and realizing who he is in my life realizing who God is that peace, my fears just vanished and that peace came over me. If God is in us and we are in him, David is saying, we don't need to be afraid. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear the war break out against me even then will I be confident we read these verses and think run for your life this is scary these are really frightening scary things but when we're confident in God our troubles lose their power to overwhelm us when David says men are coming to devour his flesh, he's comparing these people to wild beasts that would want to tear you up and destroy you. But the devour your flesh is also a phrase used when someone is slandering the name of someone else. And David confidently states, they will stumble, not me. It made me wonder if he was thinking about Goliath. When Goliath was slandering David's name, when Goliath was slandering the name of David's God, and with one quick stone to the forehead, he stumbled and fell right in front of David. Armies are breaking out in war against David, but his heart is set on trusting God. Because he waits on God, these troubles don't overwhelm him. His faith rebukes his fears. Look on your verse sheet at Psalm 3. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Can you even imagine that? This is David talking about a different battle. He lies down. He goes to sleep knowing battles are being formed against him even while he rests. But that's how much peace he has. And I wanted to tell this real fast story because it just fit here. Uh, A few weeks ago, Ted and I had some of the staff out for dinner and prayer. And they had left. And we we went to bed and immediately heard, like, 
Like it just sounded like someone in our house knocking over a dining room chair or something. So we both look at each other and we get out of bed. And for some reason, Ted had a flashlight in there. I don't know why. So we're going through the house with this flashlight. Why we didn't just turn the lights on, I don't know. (laughs) It was more dramatic that way. Well, we don't see a thing. It was really strange. So we go back to bed, and like I said, in three seconds, Ted is asleep. I hear it again. I mean, really loud noise in our house. And so I wake Ted back up. We go back out with the flashlight. We go all around the house. We cannot find anything fallen or turned over. We can't find any person hiding in a closet. Can't find anything. So we go back to our room, lock our bedroom door, and go to sleep. And I thought, hey, we must not have too many fears. We're thinking someone's in our house, but we go to sleep. We go to sleep. Ted wakes up at 4 a.m. hearing the same thing. He's finally going to figure it out. He goes out, and long story short, we have a skylight in the middle of our house up high. And a buzzard had decided to roost that night on the skylight. So he was probably eating things on the skylight. And every time he moved around, it would echo down through our whole house. So Ted finally with his flashlight figures out a buzzard is on our roof. Anyway, we still slept soundly. We, uh, we were confident in God. But we're glad the buzzard's gone. Okay, I want to talk about waiting in communion now because this was my favorite part of this song. David is surrounded by these scary situations, but he doesn't go to God just to be delivered. And that is a mistake I make, maybe you make. When I find myself in trials, I'm sometimes, yeah, I am going to God more, but am I going to adore God more? And I, am I going to know God more, or am I just wanting out of this really scary situation? In the middle of all that's going on, David says, and now I get to do my favorite thing, adore God. Look at verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I think that one of the first responses of when we communion with God is we develop holy longings. Living in our world today, we long for lots of things. Places, people, positions, things, comfort. And sometimes those longings lodge in our heart and they get our best efforts and we feed them and they entertain us and we're going along good and then hard times come. And that's a great thing because God says, guess what? Your longings are not going to meet your needs. They can only be met in me. And so we slowly let go of those longings and begin to cling to God and long to see who he really is. And I think because David suffered much, he longed for God much to know him. And he says, I want to dwell in his house, seek him in his temple. And he's probably referring to the tabernacle here. And you remember that God had Moses and the children of Israel build his tabernacle where God's splendor and glory uh, resided. And so David may have been thinking of that here. It actually was brought into the promised land 
while David was there before Solomon built the temple. And this is where sacrifices and worship and prayer and singing and joy was to take place. Look on your verse sheet. It's Psalm 26. David talks about it here. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. But I don't really think this verse is so much about a certain place. David's point here is, I want to be in the presence of God all the days of my life. In fact, it's my one thing. And that verse is better translated, I have asked to do that. So he's saying, I have asked to do that in the past. I will continue to seek that in the future, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that just means his wonderful qualities, his kindness, his graciousness, his goodness. And then he says, secondly, to inquire of the Lord. And that means to meditate on who he is to seek him or consider with pleasure who God is. These are holy longings. God wants to fill our holy longings. Look at Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. In the book of James, he was talking about how the people would say, you know, God's not giving us what we long for. And James says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then when you do ask, you ask for the wrong things. God will never turn us down when we're asking for things about holy longings for God, to know him more. And then when we are in communion with God, on your outline, we understand our true source of security. Look at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. We can seek security in lots of other things. True security comes from sitting in the presence of God. And we see in those verses right there three ways we find security. First, we are sheltered. He portrays God's protection like a shelter in the secret place of God's tent. David will be concealed, sort of like when a parent is hiding their child from danger. That is what David's talking about here. But I think that he also may be talking about when these other nations went to battle, the king would go with them. But they didn't want the king hurt. So the king had a royal pavilion that they carried with them into battle. And the king's pavilion was in the dead center of the army. And it had special mighty men assigned to protect the king inside. And so I think David may have also been thinking about that, that he felt like he was in the king's tent, in the center of the battle, protected by the king of kings himself. When there are trials and trauma all around us, if we wait on the Lord by communing with him, it's like a shelter over us. When our kids were little, we decided it was so hard to find that time to talk with them about God, to read his word, to pray with them. Those of you with Younger children, you know what I'm talking about. You have these highest aspirations, and then they start getting into sports. And so we sort of decided early on we were going to do that at breakfast every day. 
And the neat thing that happened with that was, and I will say this, um, just so you know, the first few years when they were young, they just loved it and they wanted to read and they took turns. Then when they were in high school, they were just glazed over at the table. And we just decided we're not going to let this discourage us. And so we still would, you know, share a verse and read and pray. But this is what I love. Every day when they went off to school, my hope was they felt like they were under the shelter of God. Every single morning when they walked out the door. Because we covered them in prayer before they went to school. Because out there were a lot of scary things. And we prayed for God to shelter them from them. Secondly, we are safe. He says, um, he will set me high upon a rock. And that's a sure foundation where danger can't reach us. For David, that's a high rock. He spent a lot of time on high rocks. He liked high rocks. He got to look down on his enemies and advancing armies. And in the arms of God, we find that he sets us somewhere where we look down on our difficulties. We look down on the dark times and we're able to study them without letting them overcome us. We are lifted above it. One man said this, How blessed is the standing of the man whom God himself sets on high above his foes, upon an indestructible rock which can never be attacked. Well may we desire to commune with the Lord who so greatly protects his people. And then thirdly, we are victorious. He says, My head will be exalted above my enemies. That's talking about victory. Victory from our trials. They didn't defeat us. They didn't take our faith away. I am victorious because I have been in the presence of God. And there's protection in that. Look at Psalm 3.3. You are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. And after we commune a while, the next natural thing that happens is we desire to worship. Look at verse 6. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. In David's case, this involved um, praise, involved singing and and uh, praising him and making music and joy. And it's almost like David is just bursting with delight. He's been in this deep communion. He has this deep confidence. And so now he wants to just worship God. He may actually even be talking about sacrificing by going to the tabernacle and doing the Mosaic sacrifices. And even then, it isn't a ritual to him. It's a moment of praise and joy. In fact, look at Psalm 107 when he talks about doing that. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works with songs of joy. And then we have to wait on God in communication. And, of course, I mean prayer there. That is the number one most important thing when we're waiting on God. It gives us in these verses the opportunity to look deeper into the heart of David. He's waited in confidence. He's waited in communion. Now he's going to go to God with what his deepest concerns are. He prays as he waits on God. And one of the first things that happen when we make it our intent to, to be disciplined in our prayer is we will learn humility. And that is such a joy to God. 
when we come to him in humility. Look at verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. God has told his people, seek his face. David is doing just that. He says, please hear me. Answer, be merciful. And he says all this not in a demanding way, not in a bitter way, not in a desperate way. He calls himself a servant. He does it in the way a servant would speak to his master. He knows God alone is greater than all his enemies and his foes. In verse 8, I read a lot about it. Here's the best translation for it. My face has always sought thee. Thy face, Lord, I will continue to seek. And there's something really intimate here. In fact, I read once that one of the most intimate places on our body is our face. And think about it a minute. When someone touches your face, that is a really personal, intimate, loving gesture. And so David is saying, my face seeks your face. This is a beautiful, intimate encounter between David and God. And then David's prayer takes a negative form. We just read those. And his requests that he's considering, they go from bad to worse. First he says, verse 9, don't hide your face. This would be the first step of displeasure. Then he says, don't turn away. This would be rejection. Then he says, don't leave me. This would be abandonment. And we think, whoa, David, what happened to your faith? But if you read between the lines, if you read between the cries that are coming from David's heart, you see three bright spots of faith. He says to God in the middle of these prayers, you are my helper. You will receive me. You are my savior. So I think David is crying out to God about the only danger that would undo him. David is not overwhelmed by what mere man can do, by what armies, by what battles can do. What his danger here is, the idea of losing the presence of God in his life. That's a danger David wouldn't live through. Those are the things. When we are in deep crises, we find ourselves sometimes pondering in our hearts, does God still care? Is he still there? And so like David, we have to speak truth. Bright spots of faith when we're coming to God with those prayers. But you are my helper. You are my savior. You will receive me. And our fears will be slowly taken away. In that, those kind of prayers, we are reminded of God's compassion. He knows what that feels like. He knows what that feeling of rejection and fear is like. And so I do think he speaks back to us when we are coming to him with those prayers um, in our hearts. And he tells us about his compassion. Because his next comment is, 
Even though my mom and my dad would leave me, you never will. And there's two thoughts on this here. One is he didn't say really that they did leave him. He's saying if they did, you wouldn't leave me, which is a wonderful thought. But secondly, it could be that when David was being persecuted by Saul, which is his time period in his life, he took his mom and dad to the king of Moab so they would be safe. And he said, will you let my parents stay here? And that's the last time we hear about them. And so there's a chance that maybe they had opportunity to get back with David, but they chose not to. And so maybe he does feel that in some way they had left him and forsaken him. He took comfort that that would not happen with God. Next, we find on your outline that when we pray with God, we will find divine direction. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Don't turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I love this because... He's going to God with his specific needs, and he's basically saying to God, show me a path that gets me away from these guys. These guys want to hurt me. They really want to hurt me. Show me a path that will keep me from harm. And don't you know Paul and the missionaries in the New Testament had to pray that often when they entered these angry cities. And don't you know missionaries today pray that prayer when they go into nations that persecute Christians. They ask for God a specific divine direction. Which paths will keep us out of harm's way? And didn't Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray, deliver me from evil? And one day... When we follow his divine direction, we will find that he has brought us perfectly to his side. Look at Jude 24. God is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So while we wait for that moment... We realize every moment that I'm waiting on God in confidence, in communion, in communication, every moment I'm waiting, we can be assured he isn't wasting any of it. We are growing to know him. We are growing spiritually. We are able to serve others because he uses those waiting moments while we are growing strong We are bringing him glory. Look what Jesus said in John 14.1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Let me pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory for the reality that you are with us in all of life's ups and downs. Teach us, Lord, to wait on you that we would know you more and that you would um, reveal yourself to us and that we would walk each day in your strength and your joy. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.